coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss Now You See Me, Now You Don't, discussing the bad characters and Trojan source vulnerabilities. Next up, you're a shining star, Link. (laughs) SpaceX's satellite hacked on the cheap. And of course, our fun game, Two Truths and a Lie. Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 128, recorded on August 15th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Callie, alternate officer Fensel, and with me is co-host Tim, oh my starling, oh my starling, oh my starling Clementine, Helming. And last but not least, our special guest, Aaron, don't look a Trojan horse in the mouth, G. Clef. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. So this is our first podcast in a while. So thank you so much for being being present today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a minute, as they say. And Aaron, so awesome to have you <laughs> on Breaking Badness. Thanks. Yeah, Aaron, why don't you um, really quickly just give uh, a brief, uh, you know, mention of, you know, what do you, what do, you do at Domain Tools? Okay, so I am a, I believe they call me a senior data engineer. Uh, I've held a couple different roles at Domain Tools. I've been here for about two and a half years now. Um, Senior data engineer basically means I work on the research team. I work on supporting the uh, machine learning models that generate our threat scores and work on things that don't quite fit into the realm of developer or, um, you know, customer support. You get to play with a lot of really cool data. I get to play with the data, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Cool. And you've also written um, a couple blog posts that um, if, if if listeners haven't checked them out, definitely um, head on over to our website. Um, you did a great blog post about the Alexa Top Million. Yeah, that was one of the special projects, if you will, um, because the Alexa Top Million uh, collection was expiring in, I believe it was the beginning of May. And so we had to talk about what we were doing and how we were going to replace it. Um, the other one is actually one that got much more attention than that, which was the um, Ukraine domains, where we have a, a free feed of every domain name with the word Ukraine in it that's been published since the Ukrainian war started. And so, you know, for folks that uh, maybe picked up the podcast without necessarily knowing where we're all based. We're all, we're talking about domain tools here. So uh, when you go to the website, as Callie mentioned, to find Aaron's awesome blogs, don't look for like a Breaking Badness specific website. Just uh, you'll find that on domaintools.com. Perfect. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes too. Just, uh, just if anybody's looking for it. Um, So, so yeah, let's, why don't we kick things off? Like, um, so Aaron, Mm -hmm. so you, you don't actually have, um, an article per se you want to talk about today. You had sent me um, a presentation. Yeah, so this was a follow-up to an article that was posted last November. Um, Because the interesting part for the follow-up for me was what happened after they published the article. Excellent, yeah. Um, So I I will say I watched the presentation that that you shared and right away I was hit with really compelling stuff. Like Nicholas (laughs) Boucher says things like, oh, you think the sun is shining and the trees are growing and your source code does exactly what you think it should do. And well, you're wrong. 
like it's actually raining and the trees are being cut down and your source code has malware and right away i was like okay i'm hooked <laughs> yeah i mean it's a fascinating subject because what they're talking about is really your data your source code lying to you um, and lying to you in a way that we're not used to yet yeah, it's it's really interesting. And, you know, for me, I, you know, if uh, listeners, you know, are, are familiar with me yet filling in for Kelsey, I am newer to, to the InfoSec world. So this is new stuff for me all around. But, you know, this is compelling. But mm. let's start at the beginning, you know, for the benefit of, you know, other people who might not already know about this. But what exactly are these bad characters and Trojan source vulnerabilities? Can can you give us a brief overview? Yeah, so to do that, I'm gonna to have to unpack a little bit and step back from the vulnerability itself because the what these are really taking advantage of the Unicode spec. Um, Unicode is a way to encode text so that you can support multiple languages. Um, so you might need to use characters in Cyrillic or Chinese or you know, there's some characters in French that don't appear in the English alphabet. Um, and so Unicode is the standard we use to tell the computer, here is how to encode these characters on disk. It also has ways to encode how to display those characters to the user. Uh, because there are languages like Hebrew or Arabic where the language doesn't go left to right like we're used to in English. It goes right to left. So there's a question of how would you embed a Hebrew word or an Arabic word in a document that's otherwise English. You know, if you want to quote someone who's speaking in Arabic, there's sort of three ways you could do it. You could make the poor person type the word backwards. You could make them type it forwards and do some weirdness about lying to them about where it is. You display the word backwards. What Unicode did instead was created characters that, you know, you can type on the keyboard that don't display but that flip the direction that text draws when you type it. So, you know, if you type A-N-D-T-H-E, it would go one way. If you put it, if you put a direction split and you type A-N-D space T-H-E, you put a direction split in between those two, it will display as A-N-D-E-H-T because you've told it to switch the direction the language displays, but you type it in the same order. That's great for embedding different languages, for supporting multiple languages and multiple encodings. The problem is when you get to the security people, because they look at that and think, can I use this to make my code or make things lie to me? And it turns out you can. What these guys did was they played around a lot with the directionality control characters. And with those, built a couple of applications, you know, just little toy programs, where directionality control things moved what looked like logic, you know, like if this character is true, into comments. So a person reading source code would read this and say, okay, this line here is not executed unless this condition is met. But the compiler isn't looking at what's displayed. The compiler is looking at what's actually in the file. And it ignores the direction control character. So the control thing, the if, you know, if user is admin do thing, the if user is admin gets moved into the comment according to the compiler. So the user looks at this code, reviews it, says, I'm fine with this. The compiler 
builds the application and runs it, and then it does something different than the user who reviewed it think they did, thinks it's supposed to. And that's really surprising. That's something where a you know, malicious patch could totally disable administrative controls. It could change how, behave, how the application behaves entirely. And the problem is, of course, most of the ways you would review this are susceptible to this because they're trying to support Unicode. You know, if you submit a patch to GitHub, for example, your browser is going to support Unicode. It's going to support those direction change characters. Your IDEs want to support users in these countries. They support Unicode. They support these direction control characters. It's really hard to see this unless you have something that said, I'm going to show you that there are Unicode characters. And they don't generally want to because someone who's writing in Arabic doesn't think these characters are unusual. This is how they write. So this this sounds like, so is it true? I mean, I can imagine when it's used maliciously, the malicious actor is going to make sure that it it is hard to spot. But when it happened accidentally, wouldn't that jump out a little, if I'm understanding it right, wouldn't it jump out potentially a little bit because where it's going to happen is a bit chaotically. So like you were talking about, the, uh, you would have a co- something commented out, but what was commented out wouldn't necessarily look like a complete sensical sentence. Is that... Is that, am I understanding that right? Well, no. So what they do is they have a, the, one of their examples is there's a line that says, you know, it has a comment before a line of logic. And the comment says, only run this if admin, and then end comment. And then if is admin, colon, you know, new line, then the thing. And the problem is the reverse characters, according to the compiler, the reverse characters actually put the if is admin inside the comment. So that whole line, according to the compiler, is a comment. Oh, so it won't it won't accidentally look weird. So whether it's malicious or unintentional, it's still gonna gonna kind of Yeah. The their examples make perfect sense when you read them. That is fascinating. So there's another layer to this, which is they went beyond code and looked at machine learning algorithms. Because again, we read the things as they're displayed, not as they're encoded on disk. So your machine learning algorithms are trying to do things like sentiment analysis or, you know, malicious text or like abusive text detection. They will see these um, printing characters and they will treat these as just another character to learn from. And we will see those. We won't see the uh, non-printing characters at all. And the result of the text will be very different to a person who's seeing the text backwards. That is a trip. That, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, can you, so Aaron, when I was watching this presentation, and maybe this goes into a little bit with the machine learning aspect, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, but so it was mentioned that this problem also gets worse because of copying and pasting code found, you know, elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. So, and I will freely confess, I do this too. You know, I've, I've been a developer for many years. And there's a bad habit we all have, you know, guilty as charged. I do it too. You have a problem. You don't know quite how to solve it. You look it up on Stack Overflow. Somebody has thought of it. You copy paste their code. Well, yeah. Like you want to assume like everybody is, we're, you know, we're helping each other. Yeah. And the problem is that Windows and Mac OS copy paste includes Unicode control characters. Copy paste supports Unicode. So if the example you have grabbed is malicious. You have brought those reverse characters and those, you know, unprintable control characters in with you. Um, it's one of the things that actually drives a lot of people crazy because 
I've seen a bunch of people I follow comment, I never want to paste and keep formatting. I never want to do this. Why is this the default? Uh, <laughs> but that is the default. Gotcha. So um, so maybe moving on just a little bit, how mm-hmm. how exactly were the was this discovered? Like what was the catalyst, you know, to, to just making this discovery? Was it an, an attack or is it just more theoretical research? This was straight up academic research. Um, they ended up releasing a whole paper on it. Um, I believe one of them is at a UK university. I don't remember which one. I want to say Cambridge, but I could be wrong. Um, I think you're right. I think it's Cambridge, but yeah, so, yes, we'll check. <laughs> but yeah, this was purely academic research. Um, and you know, the security industry has a bad habit of looking at academic research and going, well, these guys are not actually out there. They're not doing anything interesting. Um, but as it turns out, the academics found something that just no one had thought of to really mess with this way. What do you think the implications of something like that is if it's purely theoretical research, you know, does that help spread badness out there because you're teaching people something that maybe somebody else hasn't necessarily thought of and that person is more ill-intentioned than someone else? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, this comes back to the whole full disclosure debate that has been rampaging in the industry for the multiple decades that I've been aware of it and probably before I got into it. Um, you know, the arc, the counter argument is you can't fix a bug if you don't know it exists. And so the fastest way to fix a bug everywhere is to tell everyone. That makes, that makes sense. Okay. Well, that's, that is so interesting. Um, so because this problem is kind of quote unquote invisible, how, how does, how do you mitigate something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, the. Each of the organizations, we'll get to this in a sec, I suspect, each of the organizations reacted very differently. Um, you know, Rust, for example, as a programming language, considered these characters to be a fundamental mistake in code. Rust came down and said, we are changing the specification for Rust. Unprintable characters are an error in the source code file, and they will just not compile. Java, on the other hand, said, this is your IDE's problem. We're not doing anything. Um, Python put out something that said, wow, this is weird. And they have a whole, it's called a, Pyth- a, a PEP. And I forget what the PEP stands for, uh, where they are talking about unprintable characters or unprinting characters could really be a problem. It could be very deceptive to users. We don't know how to handle this. And they have a whole conversation in this PEP file about the problem, but they don't have a uh, concrete answer for what to do yet. Um, and then the ML side of things it's really hard because unprinting characters show up as new training data. And what you almost have to do is either remove them entirely, sanitize your inputs, or just retrain your machine learning models with this data and use more examples of that. Well, I think also, you know, when we talk about, you know, how this was theoretical research and you put this, you put something out there because you can't fix a bug that you don't know exists. I think, you know, more mitigations will probably become available as more people take a look at this too, probably, right? Yeah. Well, some of it's going to be very interesting because the responses, and this is the part that actually caught my eye and that just came out, the responses were really varied across the industry. Um, The IDEs, the integrated development environments, treated as a regular bug. They have a process, you know, basically just a turn the crank thing. We got a security notice. Okay, fix it. Release a new version. Uh, so the IDEs were very responsive because they already had a process for it. 
some of the languages, um, like Rust, you know, responded very quickly as well, although they had internal debates about whether this is a language vulnerability or an IDE vulnerability. Um, and the machine learning models really don't have the structure to have security model or security notices like this. Um, and so they were very inconsistent about it. Um, and they mentioned uh, in the follow-up talk, some of that is really about people expect machine learning models to be wrong occasionally. So it being wrong about things that have control characters in it, they kind of shrugged. And until somebody really said, no, I can lie to your users through this, they didn't really consider it at all. Uh, I mean, they yeah, said it's that- it's kind of the wrong kind of wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Google apparently reacted fairly quickly, but none of the other um, machine learning model, uh, you know, natural language processing model vendors reacted terribly quickly because the attitude is machine learning models are wrong all the time. Why is this new? Um, and that's just sort of a, an environment maturity thing that the machine learning models and machine, machine learning model vendors haven't had to deal with security announcements and security vulnerabilities as a thing that they just have to have a process for. So, um, so like you mentioned, you know, at the top of our discussion, this, this research was shared in late 2021 and was presented um, at, at the keynote at Langsec this past spring and was recently made available on YouTube this month. So, and that's how I watched it. Um, but do you, what do you think that means, um, you know, for this type of, you know, vul vulnerability? Like, do you think this will be something that's going to be pervasive because, you know, because this news is kind of resurf resurfacing in a way? I mean, I think part of their presentation was about their response, about what happened when they brought this to people's attention. Um, so I think a lot of it has been mitigated already, especially in the IDEs. Uh, so if you're using a recent IDE, it should be okay. Um, so I don't think it's going to become pervasive in that way. What I think is going to be really interesting is the NLP libraries. Um, because or natural language processing, if I hadn't explained that acronym before. Um, so like Twitter, for example, has a, fun a function where you write a tweet and they will say, you know, people don't tend to write tweets like this. Are you sure you want to do that? And what they're doing is having a machine learning model analyze this and say, this looks pretty aggressive. We don't think you really want to send this. But with these non-printing characters, maybe they're just non-printing spaces, maybe they're reversing letters, whatever it is, you bypass that analysis. So if Twitter starts getting a lot more aggressive about, no, we're not going to post this because you didn't pass the abuse, you know, the abuse NLP model, I expect that this is going to turn into kind of a, um, an arms race with people using non-printing characters, then Twitter handles that one, then they use a different one, Twitter handles that one, and back and forth and back and forth. Uh, so I expect the, the NLP models to be the more interesting space. Gotcha. Well, I think that lends us into our hoodie rating pretty well. Um, so, so I, so you're newer to the podcast, Aaron. So um, you might not be as familiar with our hoodie ratings. And for those of you who are who are also new to the podcast, um, the hoodie rating is um, you know after we discuss um, you know an article or you know for example this presentation, you know we'll give that piece of news a hoodie rating, meaning from one out of ten hoodies. Um, thinking of like a stereotypical hacker, um, so 10 being the absolute worst case scenario and one being, yeah, that's not so bad. Um, how problematic is uh, 
a particular story. So, you know, I've got my own thought after your response, Erin, but what would you give this uh, this story or this research uh, a hoodie rating? From the code, so I'm going to give it two, actually. From the code side, I'd say since it is mostly mitigated in the IDEs already, it's fairly low. You know, they re- they disclosed responsibly. They got um, in feedback from all the IDEs. So I'd put this more as sort of a, a four, maybe five for the code side. For the NLP side, I think it's going to be a bigger deal than the NLP model folks think it will. And I'm going to give this more of a six, maybe even a seven uh, for the NLP folks. Okay, gotcha. Tim, what, what would you think, you know, from, from listening to this? I was going to put it... Uh... Pretty, pretty much right in the middle because of the number of unknowns, I think. Uh, you know, how are people going to exploit it? Is it going to... So if people are dorking the Twitter algorithm, that certainly has a social consequence, especially if it happens, if it really enables uh, either misinformation campaigns or disinformation campaigns or sort of hate campaigns. That's got a, a big social a potentially big social consequence, you know, proportional to how broadly it's done and whether Twitter is able to respond effectively um, from a kind of pure hacking perspective. It seems a little less problematic. Um, as Aaron said, the IDEs have, have taken care of it, uh, but there's a lot of unknowns. So I'm just going to go right down the middle with a five hoodie rating. Well, thank you, Aaron. I, I really appreciate you joining the show this week um, with uh, Taylor Wilkes Pierce being out at Sands de Fear uh, in Austin. So we appreciate you taking a spot. Um, this is a huge side note, but um, you have a very relaxing voice. And I really feel like you should be reading some audiobooks. Um, <laughs> it's just my, my personal uh, assessment after this conversation. Yeah, very <laughs> thank, like, you. Man, thank you. He's got a really good voice. <laughs> I used to work for NPR, actually, but not oh, in front of the microphone. That... I used to work on there. The, they make everybody have an NPR voice, right? I mean, if you're the janitor, it doesn't matter. Like... you got to be able to jump in there in any second and say, from NPR News in Washington, this is the janitor. That is perfect. I love that. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back uh in a moment with our next article, Breaking Badness. We'll be back in one moment. All right, and we are back. We're going to talk with um, Tim Helming this week about... uh, some some research that was shared at Black Hat. Yeah, Tim, you were actually out at Black Hat. You've actually been gone for for a little bit. You were at, uh, taking some well deserved PTO, and uh, you're just coming back uh, from Vegas. Can you tell me a little bit about how that went? Yeah, I went to half of Hacker Summer Camp. I did not get to DefCon this year, unfortunately, um, uh, which. It's too bad because there's lots of really, really fascinating stuff there. But uh, as most of our listeners probably know, but I was at Black Hat and uh, missed the epic flooding that actually was kind of starting to to happen while I was arriving at the airport. So I missed that, but that was kind of crazy. 
But good show. I didn't hear this particular presentation that we're going to talk about today. And, um, you know, the recordings of the Black Hat briefings become available widely sometime in the late fall, I think. So there will be a point where, or winter or something like that, several months from now. So there will become a point where folks get to listen to those if they didn't hear them live in Vegas. But uh, anyway, yeah, it was... Uh, it was a pretty interesting show as usual. Lots of lots of new technology, lots of familiar faces and friends and logos and stuff as well. So, and it stayed below a hundred degrees. So you know that was good too. That's always ideal. <laughs> it, I was uh, looking at the weather uh, that that week, but it didn't. It, originally, it didn't look great. But yeah, I'm glad glad you missed out on the super hot weather. Um, so for this particular research, um, it was Belgian researcher Leonard, Leonard, I'm going to say it's Luters. I'm going to say it's pronounced with the V. I couldn't find anything. So if anybody's listening, you can please um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but that he revealed at Black Hat how he mounted a successful fault injection attack on a user terminal for SpaceX's satellite-based internet system. So Tim, maybe just to get things going... As one does. Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. All the time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for anybody listening who doesn't already know, um, can you just talk a little bit about what Starlink is and what it, what's its purpose? Yeah, for sure. So Starlink is one of the many products developed by the eminently controversial Mr. Musk. Uh, it is part of SpaceX. And Starlink is a constellation of ultimately thousands of small communication satellites that provide internet access. And uh, so one of the very advantageous things about satellites is that they can provide connectivity in areas of the earth that don't have other options, like very remote locations on land or out in the ocean. Now, satellite internet access is not new. It's been around for at least 20 years or so. But what's new about Starlink is it aims to bring the cost of satellite-based access way down from where it traditionally has been. And it gives pretty good performance in terms of the, you know, uplink and downlink speeds. So uh, in my other life as an emergency management volunteer, we have a lot of interest in this as one possible means of alternative communication. Since, you know, if a big earthquake knocks out your local cell towers and the like, if your Starlink transceiver didn't get crunched by falling debris, and as long as you've got power available, which can come from batteries, you're good to go. So it's a pretty interesting system. Astronomers hate it, by the way, because it's causing light pollution in the sky. So, you know, your friendly local astronomer is, uh, is probably muttering a curse when they hear the name mentioned. Like, do you think Neil deGrasse Tyson has a bone to pick about this? I'm guessing he, he does, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, we should, you know, it would be, it would be, uh, Actually, I'll, I'm going to look that up and find out if he said anything publicly about it. But yeah, it's it's an issue for astronomy for sure. So, like you had mentioned, you know, at the at the top, like you know, joking, you know, hacking into the satellite as you do. Uh, why why would somebody attempt something like this? You know, in in preparation for this, you know, I'm looking at who who is, you know, Leonard Booters. Uh, what's his background? He doesn't work for SpaceX. So why would somebody want to do this even just for research? Sure, yeah. Well, you know, if something has electrons flowing around inside it, then it is a target for, I don't know, we can call it creative experimentation. 
And Starlink has a lot of reasons that it could be a target, though. You know, it's high profile. It's an interesting technology. Some people hate Elon Musk. It's, by definition, internet accessible. That's the whole point of it. Although that aspect doesn't really affect this story, as we'll see. But anyway, the list goes on for reasons why somebody might want to do this. Being able to control these things offers a lot of potentially interesting things that you can accomplish which range from just giving yourself maybe free Starlink access to, I don't know, denying service, leveraging unauthorized access into networks. We don't really know about that part, but once you've compromised one part of a system, it's not hard to imagine that things can spread from there. Gotcha. So how how exactly was he able to do this? Well, what I love about this story is it involves a fairly different modality of hacking than what we usually talk about on the show. And in many ways, it gets back to the roots of computer hacking when it was not all done in software and over networks. So in this case, uh, Mr. Voters tore down a Starlink transceiver and studied how it worked and then devised a little microcontroller-based hack module that he connected, like literally via wires, to the Starlink. And this device leveraged something called a voltage fault injection, which basically caused a momentary short in the hardware ROM bootloader. And that short causes the bootloader to bypass its security protections. And the fun begins there. I, I love all this because the DIYer and crafter in me like loves the innovation so much. Like I just want to see like a YouTube oh, video yeah. of him just like so just doing this one by, like step by step and you know if you don't have this at home you can use this instead yep, um, yep. but and and all the parts i mean the the story was like he was saying you know 25 bucks in parts or something like this i mean it's not this is not a bank breaker i know i was like i have 25 dollars <laughs> right um but but what was the result of of this effort so uh yeah, first of all, you know, the whole idea of building a little microcomputer that you attach to the terrestrial transceiver of a new satellite internet capability, that's straight out of Hollywood, right? Uh, complete with a cool techie looking little device that he made. But anyway, as you might imagine, the goal here is to basically pwn this, uh, this unit, the UT, um, this transceiver, and get into the satellite network. And that is, in fact, what he achieved by deploying a modified bootloader. So I mentioned that he was able to bypass security checks. And what was specifically happening was that the, this fault injection bypassed the firmware signature verification. So if you can't uh, verify through a, uh, a digital signature that it's the firmware you're expecting, then that means somebody can sneak in some other firmware, which is exactly what he did. Gotcha. So, um, so with all of this, you know, research and the presentation at Black Hat, what was SpaceX's response to all of this research? And, you know, how, how do companies usually react to, to research like this that's, that's done outside of their own walls? Well, to answer the second question first, you know, at Hacker Summer Camp time, when it was particularly DEF CON, we've, over the years, we've seen a wide range in how companies have reacted, uh, some better than others, as far as like the PR of it, to the disclosures that are made during the conference. But, you know, the good news here is that the way he reported this to SpaceX was through its bug bounty program. And we always like it when companies run bug bounties, because 
A, it properly rewards researchers who put a lot of work into finding bugs and developing exploits. And B, it acknowledges that all production software and hardware is imperfect. So finding bugs is way better than pretending they don't exist. So just from the standpoint of kind of a philosophical stance toward your product, uh, a bug bounty program, I think is a great thing. So in its six page response to voters, uh, SpaceX basically doubles down on this good attitude. They congratulate him for finding it. They encourage researchers to hammer on it even harder. So, and then they respond specifically to this hack by pointing out that it, it doesn't affect your, uh, ordinary Starlink user, um, which is, uh, at least in an immediate sense, that's true, because you need physical access to that user terminal, the UT thing. Um, you need to have one of these devices that he built. Um, and so any given individual Starlink owner's odds of having their UT hacked in this way are very low. And uh, there are pretty easy ways to safeguard against it. Um, the part that to me is a little mushy is that we don't necessarily know the full extent of what might be possible in terms of uh, least privilege violations once the hacker has access into the Starlink network. So there's no reason right now to believe that they could wreak any kind of major havoc, but you know, it's hard to prove a negative. Can you prove that they couldn't cause any harm? Probably not. So I'd hesitate to say that there's no way that this access method could harm others. Uh, but right now, I, I agree. I'm not really disagreeing with what Starlink says. Like this is not, um, it's not something that should put everybody in a panic if they're a Starlink user. Um, it is pretty interesting and uh, an and enterprising kind of hack, but uh, the sky isn't falling necessarily. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Um, and I think it kind of leads us into our, our hoodie rating. And this is maybe an interesting one because as you were talking, I was thinking, does this garner goodies or hoodies? And maybe this, the same could actually be said of, uh, of Aaron's um, piece as well. Maybe that deserves some goodies too for the research that people have done. So I don't, I don't know what you think about that, Tim. Yeah, I'll treat this one from the hoodie perspective, just because, you know, there's, there's really the fundamental question of how secure is Starlink? And is it, um, is it subject either to violation of least privilege, which could compromise information or to denial of service? Um, and from based on this particular exploit, I think it's, it's super interesting, but I don't necessarily think it represents a giant risk right now. So I'm going to put it, especially if we look at, you know, a day in the life of the average defender, this is kind of a, maybe a two hoodie thing from my perspective. Now that could totally change if we find out that there are different kinds of follow on exploits from this, but right now it's low. I, I'd say two hoodies. Okay. That sounds good. What about you, Aaron? In listening to all of this, what would you rate this uh, from one to 10 hoodies? Fairly low because it sounds like, unless I've misunderstood it, it requires local access to the Starlink box, which means you have to actually be able to get to somebody. Uh, so exactly, you have to get there and and you know distract them. Hey, look, the Goodyear blimp, and then steal their user terminal away from them. Right, and, and that, not have them notice that you stole it. Yeah, and that limits sort of the scope of the problem. You know, you, there's, you're not going to have somebody mass hacking Starlink boxes because they have to go to all of them. Uh, so yeah, I'd make this fairly low, probably two or three myself. Yeah, and they have to have that. They have to build that 
that cool little device too mm -hmm. and know where to solder it onto the thing. <laughs> well, the first step is having $25. So uh, the journey of a thousand miles starts with 25 bucks, I think is what the old adage is, right? Exactly. All right. So with that said, I think we can head into the next portion of, of the podcast, which uh, if you're a regular listener, you know it is Two Truths and a Lie. If you're a new listener, um, every week we play um, the fun game Two Truths and a Lie, where one of us will um, come to the table with three, uh, three industry headlines, uh, two of which will be true and one of it which will be the lie. Um, so if you're familiar with uh, this format, uh, we have our regular um, co-hosts, Kelsey, Tim, and Taylor. Um, but you know, when, when one of them um, is out at a trade show, like um, Kelsey and Taylor are, um, or taking some well-deserved PTO, one of us will step in. Um, and with that said, um, Aaron has graciously volunteered um, to be, uh, I, I don't know, I don't really know what you would call this person, Tim. Uh, like, are they the liar? Or like, they're the, the, they're the player? The designated deceiver. <laughs> designated <laughs> deceiver. I like that. Let's use that. The one. eligible deceiver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I. By the way, this is a breaking badness first, not only because Aaron is making his first appearance here, and I'm sure it won't be his last, um, but also because I don't think we've ever had somebody who was brand new to the podcast jump right in and be the uh, the deceiver in chief for that week. So uh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> you heard it here first. But also... I, and I'm excited, Aaron. You'll have to you'll tell a story of how you're how you're approaching this game, but it's very different than I think how others have approached it before. So, can can you explain what what your strategy was? <laughs> sure. So, I have machine learning on the brain. Um, you know, I mentioned I'm in the re research team that plays with the data. Um, and one of the things I did as a home experiment, just on my home lab back in January, February, was I trained a um, natural language processing model to make fake threat intelligence reports. Um, so I changed a GPT-2 model to get on thousands of example threat intelligence reports and said, make me another one, which is a thing that um, language models like GPT-2 can do. And when you guys said, hey, make me a fake uh, security headline, I was like, well, I've already done this with GPT-2 back in February. I'm just gonna get a different set of security headlines and retrain this model and make me a new security headline. So by the way, that fake threat intel report, man, that would be such a good conference talk. I don't know if you've submitted that, but you should. <laughs> I have, that would be awesome. I have not. It, so I don't have access to GPT-3, um, which would probably make much better. The one I have isn't bad. It is actually, you know, intel mostly intelligible English, um, but it's, it's entertainingly wrong in places. Uh, <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, this is mostly me going, can I actually run GPT-2 in my home lab? And the answer was yes, but it takes a lot of tweaking to get it to work right. And that was what, what was the fun part of that experiment, actually, was just figuring out how the heck do you make GPT-2 work? So, so yeah, so the fake one in this one is generated from GPT-2, which is a machine learning natural language processing model. So, Tib, we have to beat a machine, like <laughs> on <know>. Jeopardy. <laughs> No, like that one it's, time. Kind of, it's a little scary. I'm going to 
Well, let's see. Let's see what happens. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Yes. All right. So the three headlines. Number one, Palo Alto bug used for DDoS attacks, and there's no fix yet. Number two, U.S. reveals target picture of Conti man with $10 million reward offer. Number three, security world is shrinking. Tech giants are worried about cyber attacks. Hmm. That third one seems like, like that's just a day that ends in Y. I mean, <laughs> huh. I am going to go with my gut. And I'm going to say it's the lie is the first one, the Palo Alto one. And I'm yeah, I'm I'm gonna die on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, this is yeah. At first, I thought I had that one for the lie at first, also because it's just kind of short and sweet and simple, and maybe almost too much so. And then I thought the second one, I thought, would would a real headline writer use that phrase Conti man? <sighs> that something something seemed odd about that. But you know what? I'm gonna join Callie and go with the first one. And uh oh, can't wait to find out. <laughs> it's the third one, actually. No, no, ah, I failed the Turing <laughs> test. <laughs> I'm playing for Kelsey. She's going to be so disappointed in me. So all of these headlines came from The Register, which is a British um, technology uh, newspaper sort of in news organization. So the wording you were flagging, Tim, is much more British-ism. Yeah. Oh, that's where you got us. <laughs> read read that third one again, the, the product of your, your um, ML work. Sure. Security world is shrinking. Tech giants are worried about cyber attacks. Yeah, I should have caught that just because what the hell does that mean? Security world is shrinking. What, uh, huh? It is? Well, to me, I was like, well, that means like we're not hiring enough people. Like there, there isn't enough interest. Yeah, I don't know. Huh. But well done. Yeah, well done. I, I, I'm like, I knew it. I knew when you, when you were telling me what your plan was, I was like, this is going to be excellent. He's going to get us. <laughs> so in your defense... This was the fifth or sixth try. I had to have it generate several before I could really get one that made sense. Ah, it would be kind of comical to hear some of the the really the, the really weird ones. I'd have, ones. I'd have maybe, to boot up my lab should, again, but if you want, I can oh, no share worries. them. <laughs> can you can you yeah, remember that's... like an off the wall one off the top of your head? Um, so one of the things you do with these models is you give it a seed phrase. Um, you give it a word, you know, a phrase or a word to start from, and it builds out the text from there. Um, and I'd first tried with the word hackers, and for whatever reason, it just did hackers, exclamation point, exclamation point, and then something <laughs> totally other. And I was like, yeah, no, that one's not going to fly. <laughs> oh, God, I love it. This would be very entertaining, though, for you. Like, you, you if you dig these up at some point, they should just be on a poster somewhere or something. <laughs> Yeah, well, so I did a blog post when I was learning to do GPT-2 on my sort of personal blog, um, because one of the fun things is the generation is really sensitive. Um, you know, I was trying to generate a uh, threat intelligence report. One of the results of it was it just said the word um, sophisticated. It just repeated the word sophisticated over and over <laughs> and over and over, like 4,000 times. 
Well, that's what you do when you want to be sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of like uh, it's it's different from that correct English sentence: Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. Yeah. But uh, well, yeah. and in the model, it reminds me of that. Yeah, I mean, if the model was like, well, yeah, you guys use this word all the time. It's all over all of these sample things you gave me. So I repeated it a lot. <laughs> kind of thinking we overuse that term now. <laughs> we do, absolutely. It was one of the most used words in the collection of documents I had for threat intelligence reports. Well, th this is good news for Taylor because, um, Aaron, you're, you're playing for Taylor while he, in his absence, and, and he needs the points. So <laughs> he's, uh, he's... I think he's just too honest. Like his his lies are just you know, barely. If any, if listeners have met Taylor, he's just the most smiley person. I don't think he's capable of deceit. So, <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he's he's just too good a person. But you know, while it's it's always a good thing to gush over Taylor, Aaron, it's been a blast to have you on the show. Well, thanks. This has been fun. Yeah. Yes, we hope you come back. Um, this this has been a great conversation. I I love your innovation with two truths and a lie. Um, and yeah, and Tim, it's great to have you back as well. It's, it's fun uh, to be back. Yeah, if listeners um, are familiar with our uh, the Domain Tools website, please check it out. We have we've taken a break because we have rebranded. Um, so if you haven't. Um, you know, gone over to the website recently, you know, please make sure to do so. Check out, you know, our new branding. Check out um, Aaron's uh, blog post that we mentioned. That would be great. Um, I'm thinking of what else are we uh, are we up to, Tim? I know right now this week we do have um, some of the team in Austin, like I had mentioned, but uh, um, what else do we want to plug? Yeah, if anything? Yeah, and we have had some folks at DEF CON, so there will probably be some I don't know, some tweets and maybe maybe some blogs uh, that, that come out of that based on cool stuff that people saw. And, and there will probably be a comment or two about some of those things on an upcoming episode of Breaking Badness. But um, yeah, I hope everybody's enjoying summer. And uh, if you did go to Hacker Summer Camp, hope that you had uh, a safe trip home and didn't pick up uh, anything that rhymes with Rovid uh, while you were there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we we've been off for a little bit, but we are uh, we are back for the time being. So you know, please make sure to tune in um, next week. Again, we, we will likely have another special guest because, you know, like we mentioned, Taylor is traveling this week, and next week he is taking some very well deserved time off. Uh, I will be back. Kelsey is also taking some time off. So yeah, we're gonna be switching it up, having some some fun people on the podcast, but, you know, please make sure to tune in. Um, you know, thank you, Tim and Aaron, for, for everything today. And um, I hope everybody has a great week. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter, at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and slink.